Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And a warning that the, the show may contain audio images of Aboriginal people that have died. Uh, first up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Latoya Rule, and she is the sister of Wayne Fella Morrison. On the 26th of September 2016, Wayne Fella Morrison, um, a 29-year-old Aboriginal man, died at 3.50am in the Royal Adelaide Hospital. In the week before his death, Mr Morrison had been taken into custody on remand. Due to overcrowding, he was held at the Holden Hill cells before being moved to Yalatala Labor Prison where he was waiting to appear in the Elizabeth Magistrates Court by video link. The coroner has so far heard how Mr Morrison told guards he expected to be released on home detention. Then hours before he was due to appear, there was an ulceration between Mr Morrison and two guards in his holding cell. After 12 guards wrestled Mr Morrison to the ground in a nearby corridor with CCTV played for the court, showing him being pinned to the floor while his hands and legs were cuffed. A spit hood was placed over his head and a group of officers carried him in a prone position, chest down, face down, into a prison transport van. Four guards accompanied him in the back of the van and for three and a half minutes, no one knows for sure what went on. There is no CCTV footage showing what happened, but so far, the four prison guards involved have refused to give statements. We're going to be speaking with Latoya shortly about fresh updates and looking at the inquest as a whole. I believe the inquest finished on Friday. So the information that I've given listeners is information that I believe is... It's not outdated, but it's just really a background as to what happened. And I believe also there's been some legislation in South Australia that, that may ban spit hoods as well in Adelaide. So I'm hoping, and indeed in the whole of the state, so I'm hoping to speak to Latoya about that. And then after that, we're going to be speaking with Tom Tanuki, who is a, a commentator and activist, and he's an anti-racist activist, and we'll be speaking with him about what's been happening with the unions and a little bit more analysis about the protests that have been going on um, in regards to the, the vaccinations and looking at, at fascism and right-wing influences um, in regards to the coronavirus um, rising. And then after that, we will speak with um, Ian Rintel from the Refugee Action Coalition and we'll speak to him about the coronavirus yet again because another Certico worker in Melbourne detention centres has been tested positive. So next, first up, we'll speak with Latoya very shortly. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 
20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. back with the Doing Time show and a most wonderful series. Do check that out on the 3CR website um, and, and the podcast as well. Um, I've interviewed Vicky Roach before and Kutch is amazing as well. And we are going to be speaking with Latoya, a very special guest. Hello, Latoya. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. And in fact, I'm not sure whether you actually heard the introduction. I did. Fantastic. It was really important, wasn't it, to provide a background um, for your brother's death? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people have probably, hopefully, been listening to yours and mine interviews for these last few years that we've been doing this. And, you know, to see this outcome today and to see the practically the end of um, a five-year stint for Justice for Fella, you know, at least in the coroner's is yeah, really important, and I'm I'm grateful for those who have stayed listening. Absolutely, um, five years since the passing of of um, Wayne Feller Morrison. So, can you tell us a little bit about what's happened with the the inquest, and in particular, just talk a little bit about the what's happened over the last couple of weeks? Sure. Um, now I don't remember the last time we did speak, but I'm okay. sure it wasn't too long ago. Um, and since then, we've had some huge changes. So, obviously, the coroner's inquest, as you said, came to a close on Friday with the final oral submissions given by lawyers on both sides and the counsel's assistants, um, the coroner's lawyers. And essentially, as we suspected, our lawyers and counsel's assisting as well called for a royal commission in their submissions into Wayne's death because of the silence in the case. As you said, there were multiple officers, eight of them, who actually um, utilised the the silence... What is it termed again? The right against the right to silence against self-incrimination. There you go. It's a whole yeah. mouthful, obviously. Mm. Um, but essentially it just means that they didn't have to say anything at all about what happened to Wayne. So... Really, after five years of advocating for answers, we haven't had anything but silence. And that's really telling of the system, the way it treats Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, but also how it's particularly treated our family. We have been very vocal, um, you know, through protests and through legislative change. So one of the other excellent things that have come to pass that we had advocated for for five years is the legislative ban on spithood. Um, earlier this year, I think that's when I might have spoken to you about the actions we'd done during the coronial um, sittings at the early, earlier in the year. Um, and after those, the corrections um, department for corrections said that there was a ban on spithoods, but they failed to actually implement that in policy. Really? And we know that. Yeah, so they said it was an operational ban, which means that obviously there won't be spithoods used in prisons or by police, but that at any turn of government or any change of leadership really inside of corrections, that could have been overturned um, on the spot, you know, with a technically a flick of the pen. Um, and so we said, well, we need to secure this ban and so we, for the last few months, have been advocating, meeting with politicians from all different parties, independents, um, and really sitting down with them through mostly video link because I'm over here on Gadigal land in lockdown. Um, but, yeah, we've, we've advocated for that. And when it came time to stand up and push the bill forward that Connie Benara had been fighting for as well for, I think, more than three or four years as well, 
um, they actually unanimously supported that in the upper house. But so, our job so it has here, been supported, but but not it didn't go through. Not yet. So the bill has been supported. They titled it Fellows Bill. Um, they read a family Connie read a family statement on behalf of our family and submitted our over twenty six thousand strong petition to Parliament on the same night, um, and they voted on the bill. So just quickly, thank you for everybody who did sign our petition and donate to have you know these these changes implemented. Um, it did go through unanimously on all sides in the Upper House, but in about a week or two's time, that bill needs to pass through the Lower House, and there's a lot of independence in that House, but obviously since the government has put their support behind it, we're expecting that it's more or less an administrative kind of process from here, um, and it will pass the Lower House, as we're expecting. And, yeah, it's a legislative ban now across South Australia on spithoods for young people, for adults um, in all contexts, including health, um, prisons, obviously anywhere else that they're utilised. So, yeah, we're the first, well, you know, in a week or two when this administrative process happens, we'll be the first in Australia to have spithoods banned statewide. I'm so glad. It's um, but what was actually even more appalling. I mean, spithoods are not good at the best of times anyway. But the spithood was placed over, and I know this is distressing, Latoya. Um, placed over your uh, Wayne when he wasn't even responsive anyway. Correct. Um. So no, he was responsive. He was responsive during his restraint, but. The issue that also stands is that they don't know at what point Wayne became unresponsive. Thank you. Some say, yes, yes. yeah, some say up until he was put in the van that he was bucking. I mean, trigger warning. They absolutely, of course, and I think the reason I'm so uh, neutral, not neutral, the oh. reason this doesn't affect me anymore is because I've sat in different coronial inquests before my brother died. I mean, yeah. I've, you know, we've all seen the way that people are treated. And so that was no different for Wayne when they said that he was bucking, that he had superhuman strength. They deemed him practically like an animal, um, the way that they described him. They said, you know, that he was sneering and growling. Uh, just really so. disgusting, really disgusting um, yeah. terms for Wayne. Um and they said, ultimately, that he had excited delirium with a positional element. So they're not even utilising the fact in their own um, records, you know, in their own evidence that this bit hood was put over him, that he was hogtied by his wrists and his ankles and that he was placed in the prone position, which is known globally to have contributed to a lot of death. Um, and then, of course, the three minutes later, with no CCTV available, all of that kind of stuff, they have completely pushed that aside, um, utilised their silence and blamed Wayne for his own death, pretty much, saying that he was vicious and violent. Um, and this is exactly what they done five years ago when Wayne was in the hospital. The Department of Corrections minister went on... Sorry, not the minister, the head of the of Corrections went on TV and said... You know, these are the types of violent people that corrections are dealing with. So they criminalised Wayne from the beginning and they criminalised Wayne at the end of the inquest, which is, again, why we haven't expected anything more from them. That's exactly right. And I suppose, just, just to clarify that about the spit the spithood, that I wasn't trying to say he was unresponsive. I've just had a look now properly at the, um, the notes here. What I was trying to say was that he he wasn't in any position to hurt anybody at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And he exactly. became unresponsive, you know, a couple of minutes later. Do you know what I mean? But I just meant that he couldn't hurt anybody. So why put a spit on him? Exactly. No, you're you're completely right. Um, and again, that's another question that stands when somebody is restrained. Why did they end up putting him? and carrying him with multiple, multiple officers. I mean, you can hardly see his body in the CCTV because of all the officers in that corridor. Why did they not just put him back in a cell and close the door? You know, That's why right. did they have to put a spit hood on? There wasn't 
in my knowledge, any evidence or residue on the actual spit hood of him spitting. So we know that spit hood, and again, I'm, I haven't seen the spit hood itself, but I know there wasn't any residue left on it. But we've seen spit hoods used as punishment devices. We know that evidence was given to say that spit hoods do. I don't know if it's in Wayne's case. I don't know what they said. But, you know, spit hoods have been used to allegedly calm people down in the past. You see this that it, you know, absolutely does the opposite. It doesn't calm anybody down. I mean, people are hooded; they can't see. Of course, you're going to be very fearful, become more stressed and anxious. At least I would, if I was put in this kind of device and then being carried into the back of a van. I mean, it sounds literally like a kidnapping by That's a gang. Right. You know, a, a faceless, nameless gang when you can't see them at all. And That's right. Yeah, there's, it would have been so horrific for Wayne. Um, it's it just wasn't necessary. Not necessary at all. And in fact, Wayne was was 29 years old, and he was. What, tell us what lands he was from. A number of of land, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Can you tell us where he was from? Yep. So my family, my siblings, are from Kukutha and Wirrungal country, which is on the far west coast of South Australia. Um, we grew up on Ghana land, and my mum started from New South Wales, where we're at, um, but with, yeah, growing up on Ghana land as well. So I've only just come back to Gadigal land to, you know, be around my family over this way, which has been really lovely. Um, but obviously part of that is my mum, particularly, who left straight after Wayne's death, um, back here, back to New South Wales. You know, just even being on Ghana land now is quite difficult to do. It's quite difficult to bear. And Very our much. siblings are still back on Ghana land, you know? So, yeah, sometimes we just need to get away from it, but we can never That's really exactly get away right. from it. And, Latoya, just so that um, listeners, we can finish off for listeners what happened and then perhaps we can just talk a little bit about the, rec- the, the recommendations that have come out of the inquest. So basically, the CTV videos show guards removing Mr Morrison for the van by dragging him out by the legs and laying him on the floor. It took two and a half minutes before anyone began CPR, and he died in hospital three days later. And in fact, the family, your, his family was treated abominably. You and your family were treated very badly. You weren't told for quite some time. Yeah, that's right. We were taken out to, so essentially after we found out through our own kind of networks hours later yeah. that Wayne was even in ICU, we showed up to the hospital after we'd already called and been told that he wasn't there and after we'd already gone into the front desk and told, my mum and my sister told that he wasn't there, um, we were then taken out to the car park and we sat in that car park in front of the hospital until corrections came, including an ALO, who I had been on the phone with, pleading for him to actually visit Wayne each day prior to this event, um, and he neglected to do so. They came and visited us, and then we were told... um, They actually apologised, and I asked them, what are you apologising for? But then they wouldn't say what they were apologising for, so it was, again, very empty. Um, And then, yeah, we were having to be escorted two by two upstairs to see essentially Wayne's body by that stage. Latoya, that's just um, really sad. And I think it's approximately 4.18 and we're going to be we're speaking with Latoya, um, sister of Wayne Fellow Morrison. Could you explain just very briefly, because we haven't got much time left, but just in regards to what happened at the inquest, I believe that there were some recommendations in particular about... Um, the position that um, he was in, and I believe that was a key issue also with David Dunguy's death. Yeah, so at the moment we haven't been given recommendations because we have to wait possibly three to six months for the coronial report to come out. Um, Because the coroner has just finished on Friday, it would take a little while to have findings. But so far through Wayne's coronial inquest, as we know, is almost secured, pretty much secured, the Spithood Band, Legislative Spithood Band National, uh, you know, across South Australia. Um, And alongside that, 
during the process of the coroners as well, the Coroner's Act of South Australia has also been changed because of the way that the coroner has been restricted in actually being able to make findings and, you know, working with this, yeah, the silence, really. Um, uh -huh. So a lot of the time when the coroner, some aspect of the case comes up where it would have helped us if the coroner's act change was retrospective, um, you know, the coroner has apologised and just said, look, we know that today if I had the powers to do this for your family, you know, the outcome would have been much different, but because the coroner's act isn't retrospective, it sadly doesn't affect you. And so that's been another point that's been very much an injustice to sit there and know that the law has changed now and that she could have, you know, inquired into certain aspects of our case, into certain aspects of this officer's behaviour, but she just hasn't been allowed. And that will always be the Western legal system that we're under. It's just so unfair. And to have to sit in that space and hear that again and again, obviously, really cuts really can't speak. And I'm quite exhausted and quite angry about the process, but, you know, I'm also in many ways too exhausted to, to keep going with the silence, you know. This is something those officers have to live with, as do we. Um, but from here, we're calling for a national ban on spithoods and a few of the team who pushed forward the spithood ban um, this year with us will be part of creating that and delivering that, I think, Australia-wide. Um, and we'll be consulting with different groups um, and stakeholders and really people who want to be interested in that from next year. Um, and again, I said that we're calling for a Royal Commission into Wayne's death, an independent inquiry because of the silence, because we still don't even know what actually happened in that band. Absolutely. Yes, I remember we, you and I did a very extended interview um, about what happened and how um, the guards succeeded in trying to restrict the, you know, the coroner. Um, and, and now that the laws changed, it became too late, did it? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's much too late. Everything in our case has been much too late. And, I mean, I should, you know, I was talking to my friend Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, the other night, and she said to me how proud she is, obviously, of everybody and the Spithood band, but that I need to take time to just acknowledge the big feat that's been won. And while I understand that, there's so much more in me that just is so angry, even more so now after the fact that they're banned, that they could have done this on the spot when Wayne died. In fact, they could have done this prior to Wayne's death when Dylan Voller was wearing a Spithood in Don Dale. That happened yes. before Wayne's death. I, in conjunction with a few young black fellows and Torto Sansbury, held the rally for Dylan Voller and against Spithood a month before Wayne died in Adelaide. And then Wayne died wearing a Spithood. It's hard. You know, these are the... Yeah. It's just too much sometimes. It is, it is. It's... Uh... The most awful things. Well, Joya, do take care of yourself, please, and um, and and be joyous as well, because Wayne would want you to be, you know, he would want you to to look after yourself. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I'm definitely doing that. You know, it's just going to take time, but there's heaps of support. Um, and yeah, just very grateful for everybody during these times. Latoya, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Hopefully we can have you back on to look at the findings and how how frustrating that you have to wait. How long? Possibly three to six months. Three to six hopefully months. Hopefully not that long. Yeah, hopefully not. But I'll definitely keep you updated and everybody about when that comes out and, you know, what our next steps will be. Thank you so much, Latoya. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. 
In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show, Stage 4 Lockdown, and I'm actually doing the show remotely from home. And I'm going to be speaking pretty soon with Tom, Tom, and he's a commentator and activist. And we're going to be speaking a lot, of, a lot about what's happened with unions, um, looking at the analysis of the coronavirus and the effects that um, fear can have in terms of the right wing, wing rising. So we'll talk about him that pretty pretty soon. But before we do that, I just wanted to send out a special thank you and shout out to LaToya and her family. We just heard an interview with LaToya about the conclusion of the inquest of the death in custody, Aboriginal death in custody, of Wayne Feller Morrison. And it was most harrowing evidence there that we looked at. And um, before we we go on, just to say also that um, Wayne, before he died, was in a situation that occurred where a person is restrained in a way that leaves them unable to breathe, similar to what happened with David Dungai's situation. And coming up now is Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks very much for having me, Marissa. It's lovely to have you. And... I was wondering, could you just tell listeners your... Um, do, you, do you want to just be known as Tom? Tom Tanneke. I yeah. am uh, a guest and I'm... Um, I don't know what I am, really. Commentator, do a bit of satire, <laughs> do a bit of taking the mic, do a lot of YouTube videos. I'm somehow wound up as a YouTube video maker in life. Beautiful. Not my childhood dream, but here we are. <laughs> now, Tom... There's been a lot of confusion and a lot a lot going on. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got lockdown. We've got mandatory vaccinations. And we have, um, you know, protests with, with tradies and with teachers and all sorts of people in industry that have been affected by all these, these laws. And we've got also the, the right-wingers and the, and the fascists that are perhaps creating fear, now I'm not saying that's all of it, but it is a little bit of a contribution, creating fear towards um, perhaps rising at some stage and and fear amongst communities to to become fascists. Could you talk a little bit about what's been going on and see if we can unpack some of this this rhetoric? Sure. Looking at the anti-lockdown movement or the freedom movement first, I would characterise it as not fundamentally a far-right movement, but fundamentally no. a conspiracist movement. Mm-hmm. When I say that, I mean the practice or the day-to-day of that is a bunch of people from different factions, and it's always been different factions. For right from the start, it had an anti-vax faction, you had a 5G faction who thought that the whole thing was happening because of 5G cell towers. Um, you know, there was last year there was a QAnon faction before I suppose the QAnon thing sort of fell by the wayside once Donald Trump was out. There's always been different factions. And in the spaces where these people organise, which used to be Facebook groups, but increasingly as big tech clamped down on these things, it started to migrate to to, to um, the communications platform Telegram. If you go in and you look at these groups, it's a whole bunch of people trading conspiracies with each other. And it may itself, in a case of may the best conspiracy win, whatever is the best, well, depends on the time. In hindsight, the anti-vaxxers were always going to have a bit of a win because what happens at the business end of a pandemic we invent a vaccine and then we all have to take it. So, you know, in hindsight, it was always going to be the case of the anti-vax sentiment becoming the most popular. The writing was on the on the wall in hindsight. But let's not forget that the far-right element, which, again, is only just one faction within a very big conspiracy scene, they happen to be sitting on a very old and very prominent conspiracy theory. It's just the idea that a cabal of elite 
Jews are ruling the world and are trying to erase the white population and so forth. That's just one power conspiracy among many, but there ain't many power conspiracies that help to fuel a, a, a dictatorial regime and a world war. So, so there's been there's a lot of history behind the white supremacists. So when they go in there, they try to uh, to to influence people towards believing that I know you already believe there's a power conspiracy. Perhaps you'd be interested in thinking about this one, the idea that the Jews and they have some degree of luck in there. But so that's that's how I would categorise the far right element there. And yes, there are some far right people in there. But the ideas that are pervasive throughout that movement are also ones that can naturally lead people towards far-right sentiment. For example, beside this hyper-libertarian idea that's actually quite nihilist and, and, and dangerous in reality that we should just deny and stop all lockdowns and return to almost a, a pre-pandemic state where we, we act as though the pandemic isn't there, which effectively means letting it run roughshod over us. That is an extremely nihilist idea. And if you know anything about far-right ideology, you can see the similarity. If you're really saying, let's all just let the strongest survive, that kind of social Darwinism oh. idea is very adjacent to far-right ideology in that sense. So it might come out of this idea that you know, this kind of what do we call it, like medical libertarianism. It's my body, my choice. That's a very individualist thing too. That's saying I don't want to participate in a collective response to a health crisis. So there's all these different ideas that might come out of wellness communities and the like. What I'm saying is that all up, what they do is they lead people who become partial to their messages to start being really hyper-individualistic and start to, you know, they become, they, they reject the idea of assisting each other, of figuring out ways to support each other, support our real front line, our real working class, which is healthcare workers who are doing it the worst, you know, support each other out of the pandemic. They're instead saying, no, I'd rather let the weakest in their mind die, you know, and that, I mean, you know, anyone who knows anything about the far right can see how, how, Believing in that ideology can ultimately start to support, uh, you know, or transition people into to becoming more amenable to the far right. But you know, as you said, these kinds of things are exacerbated by the the real economic, emotional, and, 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 and so on, you know, anxieties of of the pandemic. Why is this movement growing more hysterical and shrill? than it was last year. Well, surely one of the reasons is because the support for, for, for people, the support that people can access to stay at home, which is the only way you can do a lockdown properly. Let's be yes. honest. You can't really do proper lockdown unless you're actually also in a position to say, I'm, so here's some money so that you can't, so that you don't have to go to the Well, that's become really patchy and they're trying to phase it in entirely and they're small businesses and they're falling by the wayside because they cannot keep up anymore because they're not getting job paper and the like. So all of that economic anxiety, it's ultimately just fueling the anti-lockdown movement and, yes, the far-right sentiment. Exactly. I mean, it, you've explained it really well, actually, because I felt that listeners needed to hear how all this happens, because last week we talked with Chris Breen about the unions and about, um, you know, what happened with the trade, with the protests with the tradies and various other industries. But I think we needed to hear more about the background. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's a lot of anger um, among tradies at the moment. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I think that... Um I think that, you know, I wrote a very long article in Independent Australia about how I thought that the series of trading protests came about. Now, I guess the difficulty of talking about what happened last week is that if you have one conversation, so if you have a conversation about, oh, you know, some of the tradies were actually just anti vaxxers, very fine then you risk ignoring the very real fact 
that there were CFMEU members there who have a real disagreement with Tetka and the union. You know what I mean? You risk doing that. But vice versa as well. If you just talk about the union, you know, and the actual concerns within construction, then you also neglect to realise that there is a manipulative and meddling and actually quite shrewd anti-lockdown movement bunch of organisers who really did a number on unions when they organised that together. Because the reality is none of us went there and did an exact box spot on the day of yeah. how many of them were CFMEU. I heard people on the ground saying that they thought she was low, but it's not like everyone was giving these statistics up. No one did a census of who was there. My best guess is that there were some, not actually that many in the grand scheme of it, some CFMEU people there. And we'd be best off trying to understand why that was there. But there were also a lot of subcontractors there who were not unionists. They're not members of it, you know. There's a lot of construction workers there who've got a bone to pick with the CFMEU because, yeah, there's a lot of people in construction over the years who haven't wanted to pay their dues. They've resented the way they've felt pressured by, particularly by the CFMEU in Spain. So there were lots of people who saw, felt, that sector was up against the ropes and they thought, oh, great, let's go out and join in on this thing. And yes, there were anti vaxxers who were dressing up in high and freshly purchased high bids. So all of those things were there. And we have to sort of consider all of them. But I think when it comes to the union contingent, the reason they got targeted is because they were correctly identified as being a loose thread. And the reason, in my opinion, and the reason they were seen as being a loose thread is because John Secker had spent 18 months, well, you know, more and more as the vaccine started to become reality, trying to walk a tightrope, trying to tow a not very strong line in either direction about how, oh, you know, yeah, you should get vaccinated, but it shouldn't be mandatory. Now, we understand if it were just a matter of saying, if the government was threatening to come and forcibly strap you down and inject you, I understand. No, what he was doing was he was abdicating responsibility, deferring onto the government. Whereas what I would really want to see is that a union, a collective organisation of workers, actually watch out for the health and safety of those workers by to saying... Have proper messaging can, as well. Yeah, actually come out and say, we demand... Why can't the CFMEU say, we demand, as a condition of membership, that you be vaccinated? So that rather than big daddy government enforcing it, it's actually the union enforcing it. That's what should have happened. And indeed, if they had have shown that ideological strength, I don't think they ever would have been targeted the way they were. It was their weakness that made them a target. There are so many issues, Tom, here, and, and I'm so glad that you've been able to to really talk about all this and, and also put into into play here about how, you know, the, the far right, um, including um, white supremacists, can influence um, people who are driven by fear um, in regards to the lack of support by the government, driven by fear that during the pandemic they're not going to get the help they need. And so they're, they're going to... To, to become right-wing or fascist. Yeah, it certainly makes them a lot more amenable to those ideas, you know, and 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 it's 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 telling that lots of people who didn't really have political involvement or analysis before the pandemic are becoming partial to these ideas. And and you know, I was just talking to to a comrade earlier about you know it's very hard to quantify the amount of things that someone perhaps doesn't really realise about the way the power and even capitalism works in order for them to think that it serves the government or capital's best interest for you to stay at home. I mean, it absolutely doesn't do that. You, no, of you, course you know, not. Cap- capital requires you to continue being productive. So it just so happens that it is in capital's best interest here for you to not die from the coronavirus pandemic. And no, it is not within the government, it is not within a capitalist system's best interest for you to just sit at home.
home forever. No, they don't need you doing that. No, what they want you doing is going out and working. This is why billions of dollars were spent on vaccines. This is why this concept that the vaccine should be avoided is just ultimately surreal. It's not it is surreal because you know a lot of a lot of conspiracy people think that um, the vaccine is is being used to kill people to actually. <laughs> To depopulate yeah. people or microchips yeah, and robots and it goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whereas ultimately, you know, and I mean, this is being somewhat reduced to like a meme at the moment, but it's still fundamentally true. It's, it's it's still something that I would say and I do say to any of these people in one form or another, and I'm someone because I do commentary in the anti-lockdown movement, I'm always having inbox me, you know, as you can imagine. But I, I'm always saying to people that... that the, the simple line that, you know, if the vaccine were genuinely dangerous or exactly. an experiment in any real way, they would have given it to all the poor people first. But exactly instead, right. what have you had? You've had Big Pharma travelling around the richest nations, selling to the highest bidder, you know, and in the case of Pfizer and the like, they actually haven't even been giving their... You know, AstraZeneca's been quite ethical. It's been it's given poorer nations the capacity to produce AstraZeneca and those nations. But Pfizer and Moderna have not been doing that. They've been selling to the highest business. And in fact, we've got this struggle where we're trying to get these big nations to give more of their surplus supply to poorer exactly. nations. Because the truth is, you're not going to get past the pandemic by just all of Australia being vaccinated. We will Absolutely. not do that until everyone on the planet, or as many people as is humanly possible, have the shot in their arm. Better or worse, that's the only way out of this now. The only way out. Tom, thank you so much for run going onto the program. We're going to be speaking next with Ian Rintel. From the Refugee Action Coalition, I'm, I'm running a little bit late, but I, I'm so glad that you were able to come onto the show. Thanks so much for having me in. I just wanted to say as well that I have Oh, yeah, plug, plug your thing quickly, yes. I have a Melbourne Fringe Festival show, Anti-Lockdown Ode, on, and it's on from tomorrow, 5th of October till the 10th. It's a digital show, Anti-Lockdown Ode, and the Fringe Festival. Come along. How do people do that? They can log on online, actually. It's a Fringe Festival show. So if you go onto the Fringe site and search for Anti-Lockdown Ode, you'll find it happening all the evenings this week. So please come along. Wonderful, Tom. Thank you so much for that. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Australia has joined together with their Imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS AUKUS is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Greck and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we have Ian Rintel on the line now. Um, from the Refugee Action Coalition. Hello, Ian. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. Thanks. I do apologise. It's been a most packed show today. Sorry about that, Ian. <laughs> no, no, that's OK, man. That's OK. It's all, all, all interesting. That's good. Lovely. Now, Ian, um, disturbingly, in early October, there's been another Certico worker in, in one of the detention centres in Melbourne that's tested positive to COVID-19. Can you talk about that? Yes, well, last uh, last Friday, the the guys were told that there was a Circo worker. We we believe it's a cleaner, actually. Yeah, uh, but uh, Border Force is not, you know, saying saying who uh, or, um, or you know or where they actually worked in the in the detention centre. Which is anyway, that's part of the problem, uh, Marissa. They, they the guys were just told last Friday uh, that there that a Circo worker had been uh, tested positive for COVID uh, and that they could get tested if they wanted to. 
and that was the <laughs> the be all and end all of uh, their you know their response. So when the guys actually asked, well, <clears throat> you know, did they work in this compound or that compound? Um, you know, were they a cleaner? Was it a guard? Am I a close contact? You know, would they? They got no information whatsoever. In fact, just resorted to that old tired. Well, we can't say anything about that for privacy reasons, um, which of course is just. You know, basic nonsense, and um, so there's been quite a high level of um, you know anxiety inside the inside the place. Um, no one's been told whether they are a, you know a close contact. So at that level, it's there's been it's just been a complete um, uh, you know you say a bit of complete you know failure in terms of uh, any of the you know protocols that they you know would be expected to follow you know for any other institution or for anything happening you know outside the detention centre. So this was actually at Melbourne um, Broadmeadows Detention Centre, is that right? Yes, yes, the, um, the, the MIDA, the Immigration Transit Accommodation at Broadmeadows, yeah. So it's very, quite appalling actually, this is a very vulnerable group of people. There are refugees and asylum seekers in there. And so there's no information about how long the person had been working, while infection, infectious, where they had worked, nothing. No, nothing, nothing. No, still don't know. No journalists have tried to get that information out of Border Force since uh, we you know, made it public that the, there was a Serco worker who was COVID positive, but they've not got anything more to my knowledge uh, either. Um, we are, we're pretty sure it was a cleaner, uh, just from other informa you know, information that we've gleaned from you know, people inside the detention centre, and also the fact that they've, uh, they've been through every compound. Uh, like the Border Force has now been to every compound saying, you know, there's a, you know, a worker who's, uh, you know, tested COVID positive and you can get a test if you want to. Um, but that's, uh, that's, you know, that's it. The fact that I've had to go to every, you know, compound and say that. I mean, it's interesting that they're offering tests. You know, last time there was a, a guard, uh, te you know, tested positive. They, they off weren't, tests weren't offered to anybody. Um, but this time uh, people, they're being offered tests, but only if they, only if they want to. I mean, there are other other problems associated with it. I mean, one person who, um, you know, has... Um, I don't know, I'm not sure whether he was deemed to be a close contact. I haven't got to the bottom of that or whether he presented with some symptoms or other, but he's now been in uh, isolation and what's effectively just a, it's a, a solitary confinement cell inside inside MITRE. Um, that's where he's been actually isolated. It's just a... Uh, you know, just an unbelievable place to put someone who's already, you know, got mental health issues. Um, there's no no PowerPoint inside the place. Uh, there's no contact with anybody else. You uh, you can use your phone, but only if you get the guard to charge it because you can't have a charger inside that place to plug a charger in. So there's no TV. There's no, you know, no no laptop. No access to outside. So it's 24/7 for the last what seven seven days now. That is crazy, um, Ian. I mean, it sounds to me as though there are gross violations of human rights here um, in this detention centre. And indeed, it's understood that refugees being detained, detained in the Park Hotel in Melbourne were also given a COVID test on Friday. Yes, that's right. It makes us also suspicious that there may be the same uh, cleaner that's gone from MITRE to, you know, the Park Hotel. But we don't we don't know that for sure, and <laughs> nobody does. Uh, but it seems uh, very... Uh, it obviously seems like there must have been a link between uh, whoever was responsible uh, for the COVID-positive uh, result in, in MITRE for that to be also the issue inside the detention... inside Park Hotel, rather. I mean, if it's not that, and if it is... And we've asked the department questions and posed questions in this extent, like... It's one of the problems with not identifying whether it's a cleaner or a guard. So nobody can make any informed opinion about whether they've actually been in contact with some particular individual. No one's been identified as a close contact. But if it, you know, was a guard who was at MITRE and then you know went to Park, then people should be informed of that, so they can also make an informed decision. Like if you have got a funny feeling in your throat, uh, but you've been nowhere nowhere near the you know, the person who's got COVID, well you're less inclined to think it is, even if you want to get even if you want to get tested. But um there's there's a very good reason why the protocols that in the community work the way they do and it's usually the case. They identify 
not not the individual's name or anything, but they identify you know where they've been, you know whether the, you know, the what particular places may be constitute a tier one you know contact point, whether you are a close contact, etc. It's all part of accountability and transparency. Um, that's uh, singularly lacking, not for the first time, inside the detention centre. One of the other things which really bothers us is that the uh, this this particular guy uh, was taken out of the detention centre for a um, taken to the hospital actually because of chest pains. Now that's also been the you know people are taken to the hospital generally when they're taken to the hospital they go, don't go back into their compounds they go they do go into isolation. Um, now he has gone into isolation, but the guards who the guards who accompanied him to the hospital uh, are not in isolation. So there's very much kind of, you know, that the rules are simply being made up depending on, you know, whether it's a detainee or whether it's a, whether it's a guard. But this is indeed horrifying, Ian, given the fact that, you know, the rules are quite stringent in the community. It seems to me that the exposure here in the Broadmeadows Detention Centre, there really are not consistent protocols and it's going to potentially cause a spread. Yeah, yeah, no, well, it's potentially that's right. I mean, the, and if it does take off inside the detention centre, well, there's a reason that it has been identified as a high-risk environment. There's a reason why the Human Rights Commission uh, last year, you know, one of its recommendations was that for, you know, people who do have underlying medical conditions to be released because, you know, it, 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 it will cause, you know, fundamental problems. But... I think even even beyond that, you can see that the the way in which you know Dan Andrews and others you know go on about the protocols and requiring people to do the right thing, um, it's very uh, you know indicative uh, of the fact that inside the detention centre, a complete different different set of rules actually you know prevails. And you know if they want to you know understand why that one of the, why there is such resentment inside the inside the detention centre, it's because. You know, CERCA and Border Force are, you know, a law unto themselves, even when the situation, you know, in the, you know, in the pandemic, when those violating those rules has a much greater risk for the people in detention and for the community, for that matter. Um, you know, the, uh, it's, if people are a tier one contact, and the point that we've made over and over again, you've got, you know, guards and cleaning staff, you know, coming and going into, into the detention centre back out in the community. Now, if you've got people who actually should be in isolation because they have got this guy got a notification that he was a close contact of a tier one exposure site at the, in one of the places, and that doesn't apply to the guard, then what the hell? Yeah, look, it's, it it really does sound absolutely terrifying, um, and Serco is actually private, isn't it? It's, it's a private company, yes. and they've all yes. got insecure work. There's no training. I mean, I'm not sure how much power the government does have to to uh, to, to do to do anything. Well, you can see with their public health orders and the fact they've got the police have got the power to find people for <clears throat> they you know on the St Kilda beach or whatever, or you know, 5.1 kilometres outside of their house in some instances, or you know, out out of, beyond the curfew. <clears throat> there are. <clears throat> there are sweeping powers that they've got to actually, you know, um, what's the word, enforce, you know, the public health orders. Uh, now, I've got some problems with, you know, with that, the way the enforcement actually goes, you know, but when you look at the detention centre and the fact you have got such a particularly vulnerable, you know, population, they, they, they shouldn't be detained anyway. Their detention magnifies, you know, their, their vulnerability. Yeah, that's right. And why, 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 why aren't the rules being enforced, you know, for this particular, you know, group of people? Uh, I think it just, again, it just is to the point that the refugees and asylum seekers are an underclass, and even when it comes to the, you know, the pandemic, uh, that it, it just, you know, makes makes the same point, you know, that they don't have the rights that, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to public health, you know, to, to their own health that um, people in the in the general community are, are meant to have. And regardless of whether Circo's private or not, anyway, it, you know, it should be transparent and those rules need to apply to them as well and the government needs to do something. And, of course, New South Wales is, is in a horrible position as well. Yeah, look, the thing is that the, the issues about the way the detention centre operates and 
this uh, is is a, is the same. When we've got serious concerns about Villawood, in much the same kind of way that um, you know people who are identified as being exposed, <clears throat> you know, outside the detention centre. Again, we've got people who are in isolation inside the detention centre and extremely, you know, what is a you know a solitary confinement cell. Um, <clears throat> but the the same protocols don't apply to the people who were you know escorting them. So um, it's not. It's not just MITRE, it's Villawood. There's a you know, there's a whole you know, problem I think with the way the that uh the, the well, there was a recent an obvious problem with the way the detention centres are run, but when it comes to protocol you're dealing with a particularly vulnerable, you know, group of people. They make such a song and dance about, you know, people having to adhere, you know, to the you know, the public health orders and yet, you know, the very people that are you know, that they have got control of, uh, the Circo Guards, you know, Border Force officers, you know, somehow inside the detention centre, the rules don't don't apply to them. Absolutely disgusting. Ian, thank you so much for coming onto the program and um, we'll be yep. um, hopefully having you back at some stage. Yeah, no worries, Miss. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. And thank you to all our guests for coming onto the show. Thanks so much. Um, and we'll be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella by the Rumpy Band. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.